0: brought to you by Lifetree at paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. My name is Rick, I'm author of the book Spiritual Grit, and before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, and before that, I was the general editor for the Jesus-Centered Bible. We're all things Jesus here, so we're in the middle of a two-month pursuit that I'm calling the newness of you. And what basically we're doing here is taking advantage of this sort of natural momentum at the start of the year, where we're So one time of the year where we actually look at ourselves and say, hmm, maybe I'd like to change. And most of those commitments to change obviously sort of peter out by the end of January, but um, we are still thinking about it. So this is a good time to be thinking about the new you. And we're going to explore this in a bit of a different way, though. Most of the ways that we try to transform ourselves, especially during this time of the year, are all based on our wellspring of willpower. And we discover, by the end of January, that the wellspring is really more like a shallow puddle. (laughs) So we're going to explore encounters Jesus had with people that left them transformed, and really slow down and pay attention to what was going on in those encounters, to see how we can lean into and live into those very same dynamics that transform these people. So in this fourth episode of the series we're going to explore one of my all-time favorite Jesus encounters. It actually is outside of the four Gospels. Uh, That's one thing that makes it strange. But I call this encounter the Tony Soprano evangelism strategy. It's that little moment in a metaphoric dark alley when the resurrected Jesus zapped a Pharisee named Saul right out of his donkey saddle and blinding him in the process. And by the way donkeys must be considered a sort of a holy animal, because they play a kind of a prominent role in the story of Jesus. If you remember this prophecy that was fulfilled in the way that Jesus entered Jerusalem just before he was crucified, this is from John chapter 12, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. And that's from John 12. So a donkey played a pretty prominent role in Jesus entering Jerusalem and therefore heading to the cross. We see donkeys throughout the the Gospels, and here we have a donkey involved with Saul. Now in some of these accounts, you'll notice that it doesn't specifically say that Paul was on a donkey, or Saul was on a donkey at the time, but we have lots of extra-biblical information that uh, he was riding a donkey when this happened. So let's first read the account in Acts chapter 9, the full account, so we can get a good sense of what's going on here, and then I'll let you know where we're heading with this. So in my Jesus-centered Bible, this is uh, Acts chapter 9, in the, the little uh, topical title over this section of Scripture is Saul's Conversion. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Well, the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man from named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord exclaimed Ananias! I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. The Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me. So that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Now, this is obviously an epic story, and the reason why I call it the Tony Soprano method of evangelism, is look at what's actually happening here. Saul's minding his own business, on his way to persecuting Christians, riding on his donkey, and from the heavens, this bolt of light, like a lightning bolt, knocks him off his donkey, blinds him, and then he hears a voice saying, hey, how how come you're persecuting me? So Jesus is not messing around here. I don't think we can actually copy this method of evangelism. Blinding people first, then threatening them— and forcing them into blindness for three days before they come back to us and say, okay, I get it, (laughs) I won't persecute you anymore. So it's interesting also about this particular story that Saul, who becomes Paul here, later retells this story again in in Acts 22. He goes to pretty much the whole story, but he prefaces it with something I think it's important to get kind of some context about, who Paul is, so I'm going to read some of the preface to when Paul retold this story in Acts chapter 22. And here's how it goes. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so, for I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. And then Paul goes back into retelling what happened to him. Don't you think it's fascinating that this story shows up twice in the book of Acts, once like from a reporter's view, here's what happened. Second, Paul's own account of this event. And it is, by every measure, a remarkable event. But it's important for us to consider some of the things that Paul is saying here about himself. First of all, he is trained as a tent maker. He forgets to say that in this particular passage. His trade is as a tent maker, but really his whole identity is wrapped up in being a Pharisee, educated by Gamaliel, who was The rabbi of the ancient world. Gamaliel only had a few dozen students, or Talmuds, during his entire tenure as a teaching rabbi, and that meant that Saul, who later became Paul, was one of the top students in the ancient world. In fact, you could make a case that he was one of the smartest people on the face of the earth at this time. He was shrewd, he was strategic, he was committed, and he was brilliant. He also says in his explanation to the followers of Jesus, when he's telling this story of what happened to him, he tells them that his whole life revolved around trying to honor God, just like they were trying to honor God. But he was so misguided that he thought the best way to honor God would be to capture and punish those who are following this false Messiah of Jesus. So he gave himself fully to this operation. This is a man who was not afraid to get his hands dirty, by the way. If Jesus responds to him like Tony Soprano would, then it's not that surprising when you consider that Paul was kind of mafia-like in the tactics that he used to try to bring these Christians in in chains and punish them. Well, along the way, obviously, Jesus whacks him. (laughs) So what does it mean, metaphorically, to get knocked off your donkey? And why is Jesus Doing the whacking. <laughs> Why is this happening? Now, we're not, of course, riding a donkey to get whacked by Jesus, but have you ever felt like the donkey got knocked out from under you? <laughs> like you've been whacked out of your saddle in life? Have you ever felt that feeling of something unexpected, surprising, coming out of nowhere and you get knocked down on the ground and you're trying to drag yourself up? And then when you drag yourself up, you realize, hey, something horrible happened to me here. I'm blind now. And then you start to feel desperate and afraid, am I ever going to be not blind? We kind of minimize this story because we know only after three days, Saul gets a sight back. But if you're Saul during those three days, you're thinking, I may never get my sight back. I might be permanently blind. The life that I thought I was going to live is now over. What I thought I was going to be doing, I'm not going to be doing. Have you ever had something that produced that kind of outcome in your life where you thought, I thought I was going to be doing this, but because this happened, I'm never going to do that." And it's it's so hard to get around the pain and loss of this moment. Well, this is a donkey-whacking moment. <laughs> this is what it means to get knocked off your donkey. I've had many of these experiences in my life where I felt like I got knocked off my donkey, and I mentioned during our last podcast episode that my 10-year-old book, Sifted, is going to be re released under a new format. I re edited it, I added things to it, and it's been retitled, and it's now called The God Who Fights For You. It's going to be released in June. I thought I'd read to you a little story from that upcoming book that describes one of my donkey whacking experiences, I guess you could call it. It's a pretty pivotal story, even though it's a very small story. Have you had stories like this that I'm about to read that are small in your life, but have had huge cascading impact in your life? Well, this is one for me, so here's how it goes. On a Saturday morning many years ago, my wife was sick in bed, and my two little girls were anxiously pleading for me to get my act together so we wouldn't be late for a family birthday party. They were already strapped into the car waiting in the garage, and I was angry, angry that everything was on my shoulders again. My wife has a chronic disease called sarcoidosis that in the past— rendered her so exhausted she often could not get out of bed. During this particularly bad stretch before she began an experimental treatment that has restored her strength, I was living at a frantic pace, trying to keep up with my job while handling most of our household responsibilities. I was angry that my wife was sick. Now, I know she couldn't help that. I told myself that. But I was angry at my kids for wanting to be at their birthday party on time. And they couldn't help that, I told myself, so ultimately I was angry at myself for having an empty tank when I needed a full tank. In my angry, impatient rush, I hurried through the door into our garage but missed a last step on the stairs. I did one of those 90-degree ankle-buckling falls with a hot latte in one hand and my laptop slung over my other shoulder. It hurt. It really, really, really hurt. It hurt so bad that I unleashed the loudest bellow of my whole life. I pounded the concrete garage floor and let the dam that was holding back all my pain and frustration and anger burst. Inside the car, (laughs) my kids watched all of it wide-eyed like raccoons caught in the headlights. The garage functioned like an amplifier, making my screams sound even louder. And that's when the neighbors showed up, the new neighbors I hadn't even met yet. They heard my screams and rushed over to see me pounding on the floor in a pool of latte, What happened, they cried. Right about then, my disheveled wife rushed into the garage in her robe and asked the same question. Then she looked up and saw our neighbors standing there. "Um, Hi, I'm Bev, she said, pulling her robe a little tighter around her. Through my clenched teeth, I spit out an inaudible indictment. What a perfect way for the new neighbors to meet us. Well, it turns out our neighbors were also parents of teenagers and thus well-practiced at entering into a crisis. They quickly discovered our girls were supposed to be at a birthday party and offered, amazingly, to take them to the party so they wouldn't miss it. My wife gave them directions while I dragged myself into the house and hobbled to a chair so I could elevate my grapefruit ankle. My wife, who'd stayed away from me that morning because of my aforementioned grouchy behavior, got some ice for my ankle, cautiously gave me a tenderish squeeze and left me alone. In the silence, I ran back through all of the things that had gone wrong that morning, and I was like a prosecutor laying out the charges before the defendant. And in the dock that morning was God. And in the middle of my complaint, God opened his mouth and spoke to me. Jesus said this to me, Rick, I pull the trigger. (laughs) Now, you didn't have to say this twice. I knew exactly what he meant. He was trying to say that he's not afraid to use his rod—you know, the shepherd has a rod and a staff—he's not afraid to use that rod when circumstances require it, that his love is fierce and passionate and unafraid to stop me in my tracks before I do any further damage. He will bring the brutal when it's needed. Now, of course, I'm not saying he stuck out his foot and tripped me on those garage stairs, and I'm not saying God will beat us up if we won't listen to him. But I am saying what my soul knows is true—that God is the prototypical tough-love parent who will not hesitate to put me in adult time out. In the silence that morning, with my ankle swollen and throbbing, the tears just came gushing out, and through the tears I heard him speak again, this time gently. I want you to come away with me, Rick. He was wooing me again. He was stopping the trajectory of my macro tantrum so he could offer me all over again his fundamental love. It's crucial to point out here that everything God does is subject to love. To the brokenhearted, he's a balm, but to the hypocritical or conniving or abusive, he's a nightmare. Both responses are acts of love fueled by his redemptive intentions. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. Behold then the kindness and severity of God, to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness." Otherwise, you will also be cut off. So that's Romans 11.22. In all things, he wants sons and daughters who reflect him. And this is why the Apostle Mark records Jesus offering this brutal directive. If your hand or foot gets in God's way, chop it off and throw it away. You're better off maimed or lamed and alive than the proud owner of two hands and two feet, godless in the furnace of eternal fire. And if your eye distracts you from God, pull it out and throw it away. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 20-20 vision from inside the fire of hell. That's Mark 9:43 through 47 of course, in Eugene Peterson's The Message version of Scripture. So he's telling us to submit to the brutal sacrifice of the lesser so that we can gain the inestimable treasure of the greater. And the greater, in this case, is Jesus himself, who intends for us to live as freed captives, people who live the set-free life. He wants to replace our puny love of possessions and esteem and sex and ease and self-actualization and fame with a great love, one love to rule all the other loves, to use sort of a Tolkien metaphor. He wants intimacy with us, because he's passionate about us and for us, and like anyone who loves deeply, it rends his heart when we prefer our many other base lovers over his own great love. He is, by his own account, a jealous lover. That means he wants us for his own. So that's a portion from The God Who Fights for You, and it's a, like I said before, it's kind of a tipping point story, even though it's a small story. Everything changed for me in that moment, because I realized that Jesus was loving me severely, and then loving me gently. And isn't that just like him? He was willing to knock me off my own donkey— Or maybe I knocked myself off my donkey. In any case, Jesus was pleased it happened. (laughs) He actually wanted to take advantage of it happening, and I could sense in his response to me that this was a good thing, that I had just experienced this kind of pain. I was embarrassed in front of my wife, embarrassed in front of our neighbors, I was embarrassed of myself, that I had let myself get to this point. Before this happened, I was determined to keep going, and muscle through. God only knows, had I continued in that trajectory, how would I have treated my wife? How would I have treated my my kids? How would I have treated myself? These experiences where we feel knocked off our donkey, it's not always simply because, in the case of Saul or the case of this story with me, that we were in need of correction. Uh, because both of those stories have something of that to them. But the other day I was I got a phone call from a friend of mine who's a first-time author, and her book's been out for about a year now, and she's walking a very familiar journey. <laughs> that familiar journey, especially with a first-time author, is you have all of this investment, heart investment, in your new book, and so many hopes and dreams and so many long hours of writing and so many iterations of changing and rechanging until the, the thing finally comes out. And before it comes out, you have all of this prospect. You know, it's like the, the weeks leading up to Christmas, and you see those presents under the tree, and you don't know what's in them. And you have all the prospect of the wonderful surprise that's awaiting for you. Well, that's what it's like before you, your book actually comes out. And her book came out, and it didn't sell very well. And so she was calling me to try to explore some strategies for how she could be now that she was a year into this, and her central question was really, Rick, should I just stop trying at this point with this book? When is the point when you just give up, when it's not worth the effort anymore? And I I didn't laugh at that question, but I paused for a moment and said, you know, this is a universal pain that you're speaking of now for any creative person, really anything that you poured yourself into that isn't turning out the way you thought it should, this pain that goes deep in you, and you don't know whether to keep adding firewood onto the fire or whether to just stop and let the thing die. That's what she was really asking. And among other things that I said to her, I think the best thing I said to her was true in my own story as well, because obviously I've walked this path many times over as an author, and most authors— they don't have a string, a successful string of one incredible release after another. Most authors have mild success, some failures, and if they're fortunate in their writing life, one really big success. But most authors have to deal with these very same feelings that my friend was expressing to me. And I told her that on my journey, I've really had to work through this myself. I've told the story on the podcast before that after this book, Sifted, came out, the book that I've now rewritten and it's being re-released, and the sales weren't that good, and I was months into this journey and I was realizing I don't think anything's really going to really change the trajectory of this book. It was so painful, I didn't know what to do with the feeling. I was just in the same place my friend was when she called me. So I went on a long walk around our neighborhood and I was having it out with Jesus. I was, just, I was literally arguing with him out loud it's not like he was arguing back. I was just ranting like a little toddler. And I raised my fist to him, and I said, you know what? If all of this has produced this, that you know this book is not doing very well, and it means that I'm probably not going to be able to write another book after this, because what publisher would publish another book by a poorly selling author? So I was saying all this to him. I said, you know, then I give up. I give up. I'm just going to stop doing this because this is too painful." And in the silence after that rant was over, it was one of those moments where I, I sensed Jesus speaking back to me, and what he said was basically as blunt as, as what he had said to me when I tripped over the stairs with my latte. It was as blunt as that, but also gentle at the same time. He said, Rick, all I expect of you is that you live out what I've called you to do. Leave the ability to write more books up to me that's in my wheelhouse, so you leave that to me. So I'd made this proclamation that I was going to stop, and then I felt this gentle reprimand from Jesus, and I realized in that moment everything got put back into perspective. And I I told him out loud, I said, all right, Jesus, I will keep writing. It's up to you to figure out how this is going to work. And about a week or two weeks after this happened, Um, inexplicably, out of the blue, a publisher called me and said, what are you thinking about writing next? Because I want you to submit a proposal. And I said, hey, you you know the sales of my books. Why are you contacting me and asking me to do this? And he said something profound. He said, Rick, I believe in you as a writer, and I think you need to be writing books, and we want to publish them. So he asked me to submit a proposal, and, and that ended up in the largest contract for a book I've ever gotten. That is just crazy. There, there's no way that should have happened. And I'm not telling this story to say that every story of despair and toddler ranting like this ends up in this happy ending. It just so happened that this is exactly what happened. I think it was Jesus's playful way of saying, Yep, that interchange really happened. And all I want you to do is be faithful. Let me take care of the miraculous side of all this. So I told my friend this story, and I said, what I've discovered is that what Jesus is really after in my life is he wants to develop an unshakable trust in him. You see that in encounters Jesus has throughout Scripture where he's really animated, excited, amazed, kind of dancing with delight, is always when people respond to him With this sort of unshakable belief and trust in who he is, he absolutely loves it. And the reason he loves it is it's because it's a miracle. It's a miracle that us broken people who've had our trust shattered over and over again could give our hearts fully in trust to him. When it happens, Jesus recognizes how profound it is and how miraculous it is. And so I said to my friend, that kind of unshakable trust— I now realize years into this journey for me that the only way that can happen is not in a series of remarkable successes, one after another. That's called fake trust, (laughs) where you think this happened well and this happened well and this turned out the way I thought it would. I really trust you, Jesus. Well, that's really fake trust. It's circumstantial trust masquerading as trust in his heart. So I told my friend, Uh, What Jesus is after is he's trying to slowly train us and encourage us and invite us into a more deeply trusting relationship with him, and the only possible format for that to happen is when our hopes and dreams and expectations don't come true. When we get knocked off our donkey, that's when trust really shows up. And I would submit to you that This encounter that Saul has with Jesus, where Jesus knocks him off the donkey and asks him why he's persecuting him, is a moment where Jesus first captures his attention and then is trying to get him to a place where Paul will trust and invite. And in fact, as Saul is having this conversation with the faceless voice from heaven, (laughs) he says, What do you want me to do, Lord? All of a sudden, he goes from A persecuting mindset to a humble, childlike posture. What do you want me to do now, Lord Jesus? And he's doing this because he's suddenly lost all control, strength, and any semblance of his sense of an overachieving identity. It's all gone now. Once you get knocked off your donkey, it's all gone. When we're lying there in the dirt, you know, blinded and confused and scared, we get desperate, Just like Saul was. And we're desperate to find our way out and do whatever Jesus tells us to do. So he's not forcing us to do whatever he tells us to do. For the first time, we're inviting it. And so, what I told my friend at the end is that be encouraged. It's really up to you and Jesus to decide when it's time to stop pouring firewood onto this fire of this book. Ask him, listen to him, do what he says. But know that what he's really after, as painful as this sounds, is not better sales for your book. It's your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your whole heart. And he's going to take advantage of this part of your journey in your life so that he can increase the level of trust you have for him. And this is really the only way we can do it. These kinds of experiences where we're knocked off our donkey have the power— to fundamentally transform and change us. If we'll do what, say, Eustace does in C.S. Lewis's Narnia book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I think we've done a whole podcast on this story of Eustace, but if you remember from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace is this bratty, grouchy, unpleasant little boy who gets snatched up into an adventure in the fantasy land of Narnia. Um, He doesn't want to be there, he's never been on an adventure before, He's an entirely unpleasant person, so nobody wants to be around him, and they end up docking their boat or uh, putting into a little inlet at an island on their adventure, and they're exploring the beach and the surrounding forest, and Eustace decides to slink away from the crowd so he doesn't have to do any work uh, there on the beach. And he ends up getting lost, and he finds this cave full of treasure that a dragon had been hoarding. And he witnesses the dragon sort of dying of natural causes right there near his lair. So Eustace crawls into the cave, and now suddenly he's rich. He's got all this treasure, and he's wallowing around in this treasure, and he's so exhausted at that point, he falls asleep on the pile of treasure. But when he wakes up, he slowly realizes that something has happened to him. That there must be some kind of strange magic happening on this island because he was wallowing and falling asleep here in this pile of treasure he becomes a dragon and he slowly realizes what he is and his first inclination is to fly into the air and terrorize all the people that he's on the ship with um, to try to scare them and you know bully them just like he did in the rest of his life but it doesn't take too long before he quickly tires of life as a dragon, and he's desperate, desperate to be free, to be a boy again, and he sees this lion who is Aslan in Lewis's Narnia books, and Aslan is, of course, the Jesus character, and Aslan invites him to come and bathe in a mountain pool in the, under the moonlight. So Eustace, in his dragon form, comes to this pool, And Aslan the lion says, before you get in the pool, you'll have to undress. And Eustace is like, undress? I'm a dragon. I don't have any clothes on. But then he realizes what Aslan means is that that dragony skin is going to have to come off before he gets in the pool. So Eustace, as the dragon, tries to tear at his own skin, and, and it's incredibly painful to pull at his own skin, but he cannot get the skin off. Every time he removes a layer, there's another dragon layer beneath it. And Aslan says to Eustace you'll have to let me undress you. And what Eustace does then is our primary response when we've been knocked off our donkey or when we're desperate. Eustace rolls over and exposes his vulnerable belly to Aslan, knowing that what Aslan is about to do is rip into him. But he exposes his vulnerability to that change, to that transformation. He invites it. Aslan doesn't demand it, He just asks Eustace if he can undress him. In order to be undressed, you'll have to let me. Now it's up to you. Will you invite me? And Eustace rolls over, exposes his soft underbelly. Aslan tears into his skin and rips deep, deep into his core. It's a pain that Eustace has never experienced before. And when the skin comes off, out comes the boy. (laughs) And he slides into the mountain pool, and he's bathed and refreshed, and he's himself again. It's a picture of redemption. He becomes who he was really meant to be, and he becomes that person he was really meant to be because he's invited Jesus in the midst of his pain and desperation. When you get knocked off your donkey, the most profound and miraculous thing we can do is to invite Jesus into our vulnerability. You know, the kingdom of God runs on invitation. It's like the fuel of the car of the kingdom of God. Jesus never does anything that he's not invited to do, and that's because he's determined to never violate the boundary that exists that supports a love relationship. If he forces us even one time to do a little thing, he has violated the boundaries that surround a love relationship, and he won't do it. He's very much dependent on us inviting But he's quite shrewd and quite persistent about bringing us into places and situations where we are inclined to invite, Um, just as Paul (laughs) suddenly—Saul, who was suddenly knocked off his donkey and blinded—is suddenly inclined to invite (laughs) where he never was before. He invites by saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do? That's Paul's first step out of his own Eustace dragon skin. It's his first step toward real freedom from captivity. It's his first step toward becoming the Paul he was meant to be, the Paul who plants the Church in the rest of the world, the Paul who could never do that if he was living under the false skin that he had been up to that point. So Jesus' challenge is really simple—to artfully influence us to invite him freely on our own, and he will— take the raw material of our circumstances, and in my case, many times, simply knock me off my donkey. (laughs) If the circumstances don't present themselves, sometimes he intrudes with a circumstance of his own. And once we're knocked off our donkey, we are much more likely to invite in that moment, and it's the invitation to him that really transforms us. So for most of these situations in our life— where we feel knocked off our donkey, we can't really control them. They a lot of them just happened. So what do we do in the midst of that? So let's here's a few thoughts to close out today to think about what do we do when we know we've been knocked off our donkey? If it's trust that he's after, then ask yourself in these moments where you feel everything has not has, has turned out a way that is shattering for you and your trust is shattered along with it. In these moments when you're lying there in the dirt, and you're starting to realize, oh no, I'm blinded. Is my life ever going to be the same again? What would trust do in that moment? Ask yourself, if I were to trust Jesus in this moment, what would I do? The equivalent, metaphorically, of turning over and exposing our vulnerability to Aslan, what looks like that in my life right now what is a radical act of invitation and vulnerability to jesus in the midst of this pain and making that tiny little baby step toward invitation and vulnerability is actually an epic thing that jesus delights over when the centurion says no you don't you don't need to come to my house jesus i'm a man under authority i understand who you are if you just say the word, I know my servant will be healed. Well, that's a small step of vulnerability in a man who is desperate to have his servant healed, and Jesus is amazed by this. He, he, he says, wow, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And this is a pagan Roman officer. The faith he's referencing here is the invitation and trust that is mixed together in this thing called faith when the centurion invites Jesus to to heal his servant from afar. So if it's trust he's at really after, when you're in your donkey-whacked moment, ask yourself, what would trust do right now? What thing, what act would trust do? Here's what I've learned about what Jesus is looking for in these moments from us. It's the doing, not the chewing. So we most often, when we're in these moments, when we're knocked off our donkey, uh we chew on stuff, we complain, we gripe, we, we tell others our story of misery. And there's nothing wrong with sharing in real life your story of getting knocked off the donkey. I've told plenty of people my story of tripping on the stairs with a, my laptop and my latte and embarrassing myself in front of our neighbors. I've told people that many times. And right after that happened, my first response, sitting there alone in my room, was to gripe about it, to complain about it. It's human to do that. But Jesus is interested in what we do, not what we chew on in these moments. And in my story, when he invited me and said, I want you to come away with me, the next thing I did was I called my friend Bob, who had previously offered to have me join staff and elders and leaders at my church, to go down to a retreat center about an hour south of where I live once a month. For what he called a day away with the Lord. And the Church actually paid for us to have a room for a day in this retreat center, and it was a totally silent retreat, just you and the Lord. And Bob had asked me if I was interested in this before, and I'd always said, I, I can't, I'm just too busy. I don't have time to take away one day a month like this on a workday. But the first thing I did after I heard Jesus invite me was I called Bob and said, I think I'm ready to do that. And that started this pattern in my life of days away with the Lord that exists still to this day. It radically transformed the way that I lived my life with him, that one event. But really, the most important thing that happened out of that is, what did I do as a result of responding to the invitation that Jesus gave me? What did I do? He wants us to ask, what can I do now? to follow up, that the doing is really the act of trust and vulnerability. Eustace turns over and exposes his belly. Aslan doesn't ask him to turn over. Eustace decides, this is my act of trust. So don't spend too long chewing before you decide what you're going to do. If you're going to offer Jesus your vulnerability, what are you going to do? And if it's the invitation that is really the turning point for us in our transformation. If, if it's the invitation that Jesus is giving us, well, how do we stop fighting him about it? Have you ever felt like you're in a, a long-term fight or argument with Jesus over something? It simmers down below. You're resentful of him. You're tired of the grind. You just wish he would come through for once, for goodness sake. Have you ever been in that place? Well, at what point Do you tell yourself, I'm going to stop fighting him, and I'm going to start responding to whatever invitation he has for me right now? Jesus, what are you inviting me into now? Help me to know so I can step into it, because when you help me to know, I will step. I will take a step toward it. I love that line in the book of Job, where Job is just—talk about getting knocked off your (laughs) donkey—that doesn't even come close to describing what happened to Job— Everything that ever meant anything to him was knocked out from underneath him, including his own health in the end. And he had friends around him that finally said, you know what, Job? It's obvious God hates you. (laughs) Why don't you just curse him? Get it over with. Any normal human being would. And Job's response to his friends is so profound. He says, though he slay me, I will always love him. Though he slay me, I will follow him. Though he slay me, I will never reject him. This is what Job is saying. This is not really sort of rock star courage, you know, like, whoa, isn't Job a giant of the faith? Job is simply saying, there's nothing I can do about this. I love the Lord. If I go down to my death, having lost everything, there's no way that I can reject him. I can't reject him, even when I weigh the alternatives. I could curse him, sure, but what good would that do? I'd still be back right where I am, knowing deep down inside, I love him. I can't stop loving him. I've tasted him deeply enough that I can't stop loving him. I love this statement of Job, not because it's a should for us. So when you're in the midst of your donkey whack experience, that you should say what Job said. No, but you can say back to Jesus what you honestly feel outside of the pain and disappointment and the shattering of whatever your experience is. You can get in touch with what is there at my core still. Do I still love Jesus? Well, if you still love Jesus in the midst of that, tell him so. Proclaim it. That is an act of vulnerability that all of heaven will rejoice and delight over, Now, maybe you don't need to say, though you slay me, I'll still love you. Leave out the first part. (laughs) Feels scary to say that anyway, doesn't it? But whatever your circumstance is right now, if you feel so nudged, so prompted, even now as you're listening to my voice, tell Jesus what's true, that even though this and this and this have happened, I can't stop loving you. That is a miracle, and it undermines the entire mindset of Satan, who believes, just as in the story of Job, that if we're disappointed enough and knocked off our donkey enough, we will curse God and then die. (laughs) He believes that that's as good as our hearts can do. He believes that if there's enough pressure put on us, we will deny God's love for us because we're only really interested in his circumstantial rewards. So when we say, in the midst of our donkey-knocked-off-the-saddle moment, Jesus, I really do still love you, it unwinds everything that Satan believes about us. We then are living in the glory of God when we say these things. And the darkness... Jesus said that the darkness wants me, but the darkness has nothing in me, so (laughs) there's no leverage. Jesus was saying... That there's nothing that Satan can do to leverage me. Well, that is the glory of God. And when we also say this in our lives, just like simple children, Jesus, I still love you, we are living out the glory of God. Well, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. Just find our podcast section. You're looking for season four, episode four. Don't forget, If you have a friend in your life who doesn't have a jesus-centered bible maybe now's the time to get one and give one and if you don't have one uh, this can be your companion it is a way reading jesus centered bible which is naturally focuses your attention on jesus no matter where you're reading is another childlike way to say jesus i still love you no matter what's going on i want to learn from you to grow in you and to pursue you still that is an act of great courage when you've been knocked off your donkey. So, if you don't have one or you know a good friend who doesn't have one, get a hold of a copy of the Jesus Center Bible. We'll put a link on our podcast page to make it easy for you if you like. And again, that book, The God Who Fights For You, is going to be out in June. We'll talk more about it when it gets closer to that. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Life Tree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll talk again next time.